0: sermon text. Our sermon text today is from the Gospel according to Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of the Lord. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. Let's pray together. Father,
1: thank you so much for your word. We pray now as we, as we seek to understand that your spirit would help us, and we pray that your spirit would also open our eyes to our own blind spots, that you would reveal to us where we need to change. We pray that you would encourage us as only you can. We pray that you would convict us as only you can, and that we would leave this place not merely being hearers of your word, but also doers, all for your sake. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are... In our second week in our Advent series, our four-week Advent series, and since we had four weeks, uh, we wanted to consider how each gospel writer chose to introduce us to Jesus. What are the Advent stories from the gospel writers? Because each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, chose to introduce Jesus in four unique ways. No, No writer is exactly the same, and so as Matthew introduced Jesus last week, he introduced him as the long-awaited Savior. And he walks through Jesus' genealogy and then he describes Jesus' conception and his and his birth. And we learn that Jesus is the one who will save us from our sins. And we also learn that Jesus himself is Emmanuel, God, with us. And then you turn to Mark's gospel, in the order that we have them in our English Bibles, we have Matthew and then Mark and then Luke and then John. And as you scan through Mark's gospel, you notice right from the beginning that it's, it's a little bit different. Um... Mark introduces his gospel with the line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So right from the beginning, let's just pretend that we didn't just read the passage and you've never read it before and you might want to block it off with your hand to maybe help you there. What if you just had the first verse? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. From the beginning, what Mark is letting us know is that what follows in his gospel is all about Jesus Christ, who he calls the Son of God. He describes Jesus as the Messiah, the, the Christ, Christ is a word that means Messiah and as the unique son of God So, but pretend just for a moment that all you knew so far all you had read so far in the gospel of Mark was that first line, the the first verse the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the son of God and you had just read Matthew chapter 1 and you were familiar with the birth of Jesus now let me ask you a question that's all you know the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. When did the gospel of Jesus Christ begin? When did it begin? If you, if you had to say, if you had to write something down, what would your answer be to that? When did the gospel of Jesus Christ begin? Because Mark is about to tell us this is the beginning of the gospel. So everything, in, everything that's about to follow from Mark is about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's about who he is. It's about what he has done. And here at the beginning, he has this heading, This is the beginning of that gospel, though. What would you say? When did the gospel of Jesus Christ begin? Mark may surprise you, I don't know if Mark's answer to that question would be the same as your answer or my answer. if I'm thinking in terms of history in time, I mean I could be you know a super theologian and be like, before the beginning of time is when the gospel began, because that is when God elected his people unto salvation. And I could be really superior in that way, but that's not that's what we're referring to when we're talking about the gospel. the good news of God's saving power and grace. when did it begin? Maybe some of you thought. The creation of the universe that's when it began when God decided to create and he made people maybe some of you thought back to Genesis 3:15, and you're like well the gospel actually begins after the people sin and the people have sinned against God and then God banishes them but then he gives them a word of hope that one day there's going to be a snake crusher who's going to come and he is going to crush the head of the serpent uh, maybe some of you thought of the Exodus, where you really see God's salvation, you really see his deliverance begin. And he starts to, to set his eyes on his people. Uh, maybe some of you thought back, okay, where, where do we really start to see some pretty clear prophecies about Jesus? In the book of Isaiah. We really see the gospel in Isaiah in a, in a ton of different ways. So maybe you were thinking of Isaiah. According to Mark, the gospel of Jesus Christ begins not with his coming. Because that's, that's naturally where I go. The gospel begins with the incarnation. That's, that's, that's naturally where my mind goes. That that's where it really begins, is when God the Son, the eternal Son of God, takes on human flesh. And, and we have the incarnation. So the conception of Jesus by the Holy Spirit in the womb of Mary, or his birth, something that Matthew would say at the beginning of his gospel, and something that Luke will say at the beginning of his gospel. And yet Mark gives a different answer. He says that the gospel of Jesus begins not with his coming, but before his coming. But in a surprising way, because if I'm thinking before his coming, I'm thinking way back. And he says, no, 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 right before his coming, through the preparation of John the Baptist. Uh, This morning we're going to consider two messages that Mark shares to introduce us to Jesus. There are two messages that, that Mark shares with us, one from John the Baptist and one from Jesus himself. So the first is, the king is coming, so prepare. The king is coming, so prepare. That's, that's the message of John the Baptist. And as Mark introduces us to Jesus, he begins there. This is where the gospel begins, with preparation for the coming king. And the word from John the Baptist is prepare, prepare. Okay, the second message we see is from Jesus himself. The king is here, so respond. So two messages. First, the king is coming, so prepare. The second, the king is here, so respond. The first thing we see in this passage is the preparation of the coming of the king. Mark begins his gospel by quoting from three Old Testament passages. So he says, "Here's the beginning as it is written." He takes us back to not just Isaiah. So as you see it here, it says, "As it is written in Isaiah the prophet," uh, then there's a quotation here. He's actually pulling from a couple places of scripture, but it was within the tradition of the writers at the time that it was Typical. if you had multiple quotations, you would only reference the most significant of of the, the sources that you were quoting from. And so Isaiah is the most significant. The other place he takes from is Malachi, and there's a little tiny reference to Exodus. But in Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3, he puts these together to come up with this passage where it says, "'Behold, I send my messenger before your face.'" who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the lord make his paths straight so this is where the gospel begins with preparation so even though we have so many scriptures that point forward to the coming of the messiah and even the birth of the messiah the scriptures also pointed to the coming of one this figure who would prepare the way for the coming of the lord if If I could, I'll just turn back to Isaiah 40 just to read one of these passages so you can see the context here. We read this on Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night. But in Isaiah 40, where this is taken from, starting in verse 3, Isaiah writes, A voice cries, Isaiah foresees a day when there's going to be a figure who comes to make straight the paths of the Lord, who is going to come to prepare the way of the Lord, and when the Lord comes, his glory will be revealed. We also see it in Malachi 3. We're not going to turn there. Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 envisioned this figure who's going to proclaim the coming of the Lord And it's almost like this this figure is going to be the last in the line of multiple figures and multiple prophets who have been proclaiming that the glory of the Lord is one day going to come, and after this point, the glory of the Lord is going to be revealed. The glory of God is going to be here among us. So in order for the kingdom and the king to come, a messenger of the Lord had to come first to prepare the way. And Mark, and not just Mark, but Matthew and Luke and John, every gospel writer, they affirm that this prophesied figure was John the Baptist. Jesus' coming, his advent, his arrival as the king begins with John the Baptist preparing the way for his coming. So then we're introduced to John the Baptist in the next few verses here. Because we can ask the question, how did John fulfill This prophecy of a a one who would come to prepare the way. How did John prepare the way for the coming of the Lord? Well, John prepares the way for Jesus by preaching repentance. Let's look in verse 4. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness, and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So his ministry is described. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. verse 5, And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And then John is described. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, and here's his message, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I. That could literally be translated the stronger one. The stronger one. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So of all the things that John could have preached to prepare the people for the arrival of Jesus... Why did he choose to preach repentance? Why is repentance his message? I mean, he says, there is one coming after me, so there's more to it than repentance. He is letting them know, someone who is much greater than me is coming after me, and I'm not even worthy to to undo his shoes. But why repentance? How how does John fulfill repentance this prophecy of someone who's going to prepare the way for the Lord himself to come on the scene. Well, by preaching repentance, John helped the people see their need for the one who's going to come after him. That, that was his role, to help the people see that the one who's coming after me, you need him. You need him, who he is and what he is going to do for you. He let the people know that they needed to see their sin before God and they needed to turn from it because the one who's coming after him is not just a prophet and he's not just a good teacher. He is a mighty king who will deal with sin. The forgiveness for their sin and the power to live as God intends is found in the stronger one who comes after John. So the people needed to see that they are sinners and that they were in desperate need for what this one, this stronger one, this Jesus is going to bring them. They need it. The heart of John the Baptist's message was this. Repent, for the king is coming. Repent, for the king is coming. Here's why I think that's important for us, especially this Advent season. If if you're familiar with the liturgical calendar, you understand that during Lent, that's where we really focus on repentance. That's, that's just a theme during, during the Lent season. During Advent, we, we don't typically talk about repentance very often. And I don't know about you, but during the Christmas season, I tend to not think about repentance in response to the coming of Jesus very often. I think of worship. I think of hope. I think of joy and gladness. I think of missions you know, I'm challenged in those ways. I need to go and proclaim this good news. But whenever I hear, the Lord has come down. God has drawn near. My first thought isn't, God forgive me of my sin. My first thought isn't to turn away. But John the Baptist is saying, in order to be ready for this Savior King who is going to come, you have to understand that you are a sinner in need of his salvation. In order for us to embrace believe in and love jesus we have to see our need for him you know at at christmas time we're always you know thinking through how can we make sure that we don't grow cold to jesus this year i feel like last year we just ignored him and we you know we focused on our family traditions and and you know the gifts and the presents and the time off work or school but I don't think I really spent much time focusing on Jesus. Well, this year, let's just really ramp up our Advent tradition, you know? Well, that can very easily become you're just really focused on your Advent tradition and not Jesus. Have you ever considered that one of the reasons that we grow cold to Jesus is that we forget how much we need him? We forget how much we need, what what his Advent, what his coming, what the incarnation means for us. The coming of Jesus is only special if we actually need what he brings. That's the only way it's special. Why do you need Jesus? I'm not even sure I'm going to even offer answers there. I may just want you to sit on that one for a while. Take that one home with you. Think about it. Just personally, not just a generic answer. Why do you need God to come down to us? Why do you need the incarnation to be true? If it wasn't true, would you be in trouble? You know? If God actually did not come down to us, would you be in trouble? Or would nothing change? Before we can receive Jesus as our king and as our savior, we have to see our great need for him. So just to add more questions to your list. Do you see your need for Jesus this Advent season? Here's a tougher one Are you looking? Are you looking for your need for Jesus? Because otherwise, this next part is not going to be dear to you. This next part is not going to be special to you. John the Baptist had a specific ministry, and it was so crucial. He prepared the way for the coming of the Lord by letting all the people in Judea know. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him to hear this final great prophet of the Lord proclaim You are sinners in need of salvation, and someone who's far greater than I am is coming. He is coming. So see your sin before a holy God and repent. Repent he will provide the one who's coming is going to provide so this advent season we need to remember as the king was coming and the only way for that to be special for us is for us to see how much we need his coming okay second the king has come so we must respond if you jump down I don't mean to skip over the baptism and temptation of Jesus, but, you know, Mark only gave like two or three verses to that, so I think it's okay. He's just, you know, that's one of the things I love about Mark. He's just real quick with it. Baptism, whoop, temptation, whoop, whoop, out. And uh, then he gets into the ministry of Jesus in verse 14. But essentially, Jesus arrives on the scene, and first he is baptized. He himself goes to John, and he is baptized. And then you have this Trinitarian scene where the Spirit in the form of a dove, you know, descends. And then we hear a voice from heaven as the Father declares upon his Son the pleasure that he has in him and then jesus is sent out by the spirit into the wilderness where he is tempted and he overcomes temptation and as he returns from the wilderness he begins his ministry and what is the ministry of jesus think of all the things that jesus did in his ministry he, he's a teacher all the things that he taught think of the sermon on the mount think of his healings think of the, the exorcisms as he's, as he's releasing people from the power of demons He raised people to to life from death. Um, His ministry begins with a phrase, with a, a statement from Jesus that is so significant. Jump down to verse 14 with me. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God. So we'll pause right there. After the ministry of John the Baptist, the one he was preparing the way for arrives on the scene. Here he is. And, and I, I want you to also notice here, it's, you just can't, you can't see it in within our English Bibles, after John was arrested. Mark is not speaking of this in terms of chronology. He's not concerned about when this stuff actually happened. So the word after there, after John, That's not chronological. That is theological. So after, the word after there, refers back to John's message of a stronger one or one mightier than he that is coming when after him. This is Mark's way of confirming for us that Jesus is the one that John was proclaiming about that Jesus is the one who is coming after John. So it's also significant because with John the Baptist, as Jesus himself attests to later in his life, John the Baptist is the last and the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. John the Baptist is the last one. He's the last prophet of the Lord in in the Old Covenant. And now after John, it's like the page turns and a new chapter begins. A new era dawns. And so this this word after is, is very significant. With the advent of Jesus, with Jesus arriving on the scene after John, A new era, a new age, a new covenant has arrived. The old has passed away and the new has come. In other words, especially in light of what Jesus says in verse 15, Jesus established or inaugurated the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus came and he brought the kingdom of God with him. And so we look in verse 15 and Jesus says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What is the kingdom of God? What is that? Don't, you know, we make that really difficult. I don't even know if, if, if you actually gave you a few minutes to write something down and I scan for answers, you, I may see a lot of blank pages. Like, I don't know, actually, the more I think about it. How would I say that? I think I kind of know what it is, but, but don't, don't make it too difficult on yourself. Like, just think, like, what is a kingdom? What does is, what is a kingdom, you know, represent? Um, the kingdom of God, very simply, and this is very simple, but it's no less true, is the reign of God. The reign of God or the rule of God, the kingdom of of God is not geographical. It's not. It doesn't have boundaries. It's it's the the borderless rule and reign of God. Um, In the Old Testament, we actually don't have any references to the kingdom of God specifically. But anytime you see a phrase like the Lord reigns, it's it's in reference to his his role as the King. It's in reference to his his kingdom. Now, Mark emphasizes three things about the kingdom of God as he's quoting Jesus here. So we could essentially say that Jesus emphasizes three things about the kingdom of God. First, the inauguration of the kingdom of God is the climax of all history. Every single thing before this moment when Jesus arrives on the scene after John the Baptist was a precursor To this moment. Every single thing before was building up to this one singular moment when the kingdom of God dawns on humanity. So Jesus said with his advent that the time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. With my coming, the time is fulfilled. In other words, all of redemptive history, all of the stories in the Old Testament, all of the acts and moves of God in the Old Testament, Every single thing we see is pointing forward to and, and eventually culminating in this one moment when the kingdom of God comes through the person of Jesus. So, all of the Old Testament signs and symbols, all of the sacrifices, the temple, the tabernacle, all of the promises and the law itself, they find fulfillment in this one moment in time. They were all building toward this one moment. In this one person, Jesus. It, in the fullness of time, God sent his Son not just to die for our sins, but to establish an eternal kingdom. That eternal kingdom that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. So the inauguration of the kingdom is the climax of all history. All of history to this point was building to this one moment. The second thing that Mark emphasizes or that Jesus emphasizes is that the kingdom of God is both a present and future reality. The kingdom of God is both a present and future reality. So Jesus said the kingdom of God is at hand, or your your translation may say the kingdom of God is near. Um, God's reign was present in Jesus. The kingdom of God arrived when Jesus arrived for one simple reason— Because Jesus is the king. The kingdom of God arrived in Jesus because Jesus himself is the king. So there's a present reality to the kingdom of God and there's a future reality to the kingdom of God. And there's no reason for us to divide the two or pit one against one another. They are both equally true. Jesus speaks of the kingdom in terms of its uh, its uh, present reality, and, and he also speaks of the kingdom in terms of what it's going to be one day in the future. So, the present reality of the kingdom of God means that Jesus has real authority over heaven and earth, and over human lives now, right now. The reign of God is here, right now. So, Jesus has real authority um, right now, not not just later when he returns and and deals with with sin then. It also means that God's people already live in God's kingdom. So once again, we live in a world that is full of sin, and in God's final consummated kingdom, there will be no sin. But at the same time, even though we live in a world of sin, if you are in Christ, you belong to the king, which means you belong to the kingdom, which means you live in the kingdom. In Jesus, God's rule, his reign has invaded this world. So it's a present reality. The kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. It it has arrived in the person of Jesus. But the kingdom does have a future reality, and we don't need to forget that either. The kingdom of God is a future reality, and so that's why we pray for the kingdom to come. One day in the future, God's kingdom will be consummated in its fullness, and the reign and rule of God will be all that there is in the world. So it has a present and a future reality. The third thing that, that Mark and Jesus emphasize here is that the appropriate responses to God's kingdom are limited to repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. So you see a parallel between the preaching of Jesus and the preaching of John the Baptist. In order pre- to prepare for the coming of Jesus, repent. In order to receive the king who has come, Repent. So here's what Jesus says in verse 15. The time is fulfilled, we discussed that, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So since the time is fulfilled and since the kingdom of God is near, it's at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So as we consider the kingdom of God as a realm and as a, a reign of God we can ask this simple question, how do we enter the kingdom? How do we enter it? What what do we have to do? Uh, If you think of becoming a citizen of a country to which you don't currently belong, so people who are pursuing citizenship in America, for instance, or if you went to another country for whatever reason you wanted to, I don't know why you would, but um, you go and you want to become a citizen there. You want to become a citizen there. Are they just going to welcome you in and be like, yeah, just the more the merrier. Just come right on in. We'll give you, you know, all the benefits of being a citizen here. It's, all, it's fine. No, there's a process, right? And, you know, at least in America, from what I hear, I'm not overly familiar with it. But it's a pretty complicated, detailed process of becoming a citizen. You have to do a lot of stuff. you got to do all kinds of things to become, if you are an outsider, If you're an outsider and you want to become a citizen of a country, you got to do a lot. Okay, change it up for those of you who are more sports-minded. If you think of a team, like in high school, whenever we would have tryouts for the basketball team, once you made the team, the next year, you don't have to try out anymore. Okay, you're on the team. You don't have to keep trying out every single year to prove that you belong on the team. At least where I was from, I don't know. I don't know about you guys. Maybe it's more hardcore where y'all are from. But once you were on the team, you were good. But if you came from another school and you transferred in, it wasn't just an automatic that you were on the team. You had to try out. You had had to earn it. You had to earn your place on the team. As an outsider, you have to work to become a citizen. As an outsider, you have to work to become a part of a team. You gotta earn it. You gotta gotta deserve it. Now think of... uh, how probably most of us if not all of us became citizens of this country how do we become citizens what do we have to do we were born right what would you do to deserve that what, what'd you, what'd you, you, were just, you were born nothing because you were an insider your parents were citizens and because, because you were born to them you're a citizen you're on the inside you don't have to do anything Um, same thing on on a basketball team once you're in you're in once you're in you're in we are outsiders to God's kingdom we're not insiders we don't have a birthright we are outsiders the gates are closed because we have rebelled against the king We, we have sinned against him so how can we enter how can we enter what do we have to do what's the test Surely we have to do something. If it's the holy God of the universe who is the king of this kingdom, what, what must we do in order to get in on this? Well, What does Jesus say? What does Jesus say is necessary for us to become a citizen of the eternal kingdom of God? Jesus said, since the kingdom of God is near, here's what we have to do. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repentance is nece- was necessary to prepare for the kingdom, and repentance is necessary to enter the kingdom. Entering the kingdom of God means submitting your life to the reign of God and abandoning your right to rule your own life. It means offering ultimate allegiance and loyalty to King Jesus. But I want you to notice something here. Even though you're probably thinking, oh, well, he was going to say something about grace, but he actually told us we had to do something. Jesus says we do have to do a couple things. We have to repent and believe. But what is it really to repent and believe? Because here's what's crucial. And this is what separates Christianity from all other world religions. We don't enter the kingdom of God by accomplishing something, repent and believe. If you think you're accomplishing something by repenting of sin and believing in something, uh, we might need to talk after the service. Um, We enter the kingdom by recognizing that God himself has accomplished something for us. We recognize that God himself has accomplished everything necessary to bring us into his kingdom. So entering God's kingdom is about repenting and receiving That's what faith is. It's receiving the gift of God's grace, not working and striving. So if you're working and striving to try to enter God's kingdom, you're never gonna get in. The gates will always remain closed. But if you're repenting and receiving what God has done for you in Jesus, you're in. You're in. The kingdom of God is near. It is at hand. So repent and believe the gospel. But by nature, we want to do things our own way. We want to do things our own way. We want to set the course for our lives. We know what's best. And in one sense, we probably wouldn't admit this, but we would much prefer to be the rulers of our own lives. But Jesus is a king who has no rivals. You do not rival Jesus. And he will not share his throne with you. So this Advent season should be a season of repentance for us. Even as believers, because the life of a kingdom citizen is a life of repentance. So consider how you have favored your own reign over and against God's. But Advent should also be a season of joy for us. Because the king who demands repentance freely gives forgiveness and pardon. He demands repentance and freely forgives and pardons all who receive him by faith. So the king has come. Let's prepare by repenting and receiving him by faith. So the last consideration uh, consideration I want us to, to have every single week during our Advent season, how do we then prepare for the second coming of Jesus? Because that's, that's the point of Advent. It, it's, it's an exercise in waiting. As we look back to how the people waited for the coming of Jesus we we see that as a way to fuel ourselves to wait for the second coming of Jesus. So how can we prepare for Jesus' second coming in light of Mark 1, 1 through 15? Well, first, by living as citizens of his kingdom. If you are in Christ, you are a citizen of this kingdom of God that Jesus has brought near to us through his advent, through his arrival. Kingdom citizens submit to the king. Kingdom citizens repent for their failure to submit to the king, and kingdom citizens seek to know the ways of the kingdom so that they can live them out. So because Jesus has come, we can love God and we can love our neighbors and we can even love our enemies as only citizens of God's kingdom can. So we should live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Secondly, in order to prepare for the second coming of Jesus... We need to live as ambassadors for the kingdom, okay? The king that established his kingdom and brought us into his kingdom has sent us out into the world to proclaim the coming of his kingdom. So I'll say that again. The king that has established his kingdom with his coming and has brought us into his kingdom by his grace has sent us out into the world to proclaim the coming of that kingdom, The nearness of God's kingdom signals two things. We've emphasized salvation, but it also emphasizes judgment. Okay? The kingdom of God is near. That's a joyful thing because of God's grace. It's a terrifying thing because of God's holiness. God reigns is the theme of God's kingdom. So rebels against this king will face righteous judgment. The good news of the kingdom is that the king who should judge us has come near to save us. Jesus' path to kingship was stained with his blood. The coronation of this king was not on a throne, but on a cross. His crown, a crown of thorns. So, Through the glory and humiliation of the incarnation, Jesus brought the kingdom near. And through the glory and humiliation of the cross, Jesus opens the gates of the kingdom for rebels to return by faith. And through the glory of the resurrection, Jesus proved his right to rule and reign forever. And one day, we will bask and share in the glory of his kingdom with no evil thing present to cast a shadow over it. This is the good news of the kingdom of God. So as we wait for the consummation of this kingdom, may we be heralds of this good news in our city and throughout the world. May we go and tell others that the king has come and he has made a way for sinners and rebels like us to enter in. John prepared the way. Jesus is the way. So, as we walk on the way and wait for the consummation of the kingdom, let's declare it. Repent, turn, come back, and believe in the gospel because the king has come and he has brought his kingdom here. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for sending your son. Thank you that His coming, that His advent means that your kingdom has come, that your reign has come near to us, and that we don't have to earn our way in because you have accomplished everything necessary for us to become citizens of this eternal kingdom. So, Father, I pray that if, if anyone here has yet to repent, to turn from sin,